I want to share a story at the beginning here. You may know this story. Of, uh, there was a little girl named Baby Jessica that hit the news many years ago. Jessica McClure was her name, and she was born in 1986 in Midland, Texas. When Jessica was about a year and a half years old, uh, one morning an event took place that, that, that the entire country began to tune into and watch because of what happened. Well, she was in her backyard playing. Uh, her, she was with an aunt who had like a daycare, and she turned away for a little bit, and all the kids come in and say, baby Jessica disappeared. What they found out, that she had fallen down an old abandoned well, a, a small pipe about eight inches in diameter, and she was trapped about 22 feet below, below ground. I just, I grabbed a, a little piece of air duct just to kind of visualize that, particularly for you like kids, okay? That, that, that's what she fell down into, 22 feet down underground, and she was caught by some debris, and the, the, the well below that was another like 80 feet. She was just suspended there. Police and fire teams rush in, and they realized that they, there was little they could do. They could do nothing, actually. They tried to bring a digger in, a backhoe, which every time and every way that they attempted to save her, it failed because she was too deep and the surrounding ground was, was very, very hard layers of rock. So what they thought would be maybe an hour or two of rescue turned to five hours and ten hours and a day goes by, more hours, they're pumping oxygen into help her. One detective would hear her moaning down the, the well, crying. He would try to calm her and encourage her by singing songs to her. One of the police officers said, we began to shout down the well, and Jessica responded with whimpers and cries. And we, when we weren't calling out for words of encouragement, we tried to sing her to sing for us. I'll never forget her singing Winnie the Pooh. We'd say, what does a kitten go? And she would respond to us. Eventually, expert drillers had to be, to be flown in and, and brought in who specialized in digging wells. They, it took special tools over six hours to drill a shaft down parallel to her, two feet below, and then another significant amount of hours because they could only do two inches an hour from there. All of this is unfolding. Maybe if you were aware at this time, uh, 20, the only 24-hour news station was CNN, and they were capturing this whole moment. The whole nation was watching, wondering what was happening, sending cards, prayers, everything else. And then 50 hour, 58 hours later, three days later, the, a miner comes up with her. Everyone freaked out. Everyone was amazed. They were yelling. They were crying. All of these people sacrificing, these rescue workers living there for days, digging with compassion, with love, with sacrifice. They rushed her to the hospital. She had no broken bones, no serious injuries. Shortly after, the whole city had a massive parade uh, celebrating the volunteers and the rescuers. There were like over 400 volunteers that helped do this. 35,000 people came to this massive parade. The U.S. president actually came in to visit baby Jessica in the hospital. It was an, an amazing heroic effort by all of these rescuers. And just imagine the, the gratitude, the thanks, the family, the friends, the thanks. And it wasn't until she was about five years old that she sort of knew what the story was and what happened. They had the 20th anniversary, a big shindig, and she was interviewed. And she says, all I can say is thank you. There are no words that can describe how thankfully, thankful I honestly am. A parade because of an amazing rescue. The, the severity of the rescue brought on this amazing thanks and praise and gratitude. 
I mean, isn't that just like an, a reflex for us? Gratitude and praise is an automatic response from our hearts when we realize something costly and risky that someone has done to help us, especially if death is imminent. Big rescue, big praise. Small rescue typically would be a little thanks. But an amazing rescue, what matches that is amazing gratitude and praise. We come to Psalm 40 this morning, and we, we're going to experience and observe a similar, a similar rescue story in that there was a radically desperate situation. A radical rescue was needed, and in turn, a radical response that comes. And yet the psalm concludes with a desperate situation once again. But we're going to read this together out loud like we did last week with our psalm. Before we do it, I just want to, I want to set us up with a few things to kind of frame our text and before we read. Uh, we talked about last week this, this uh, genre of the psalm. This is poetry. Uh, poetry fills one-third of our Bible, the psalms, the proverbs, much of the prophetic literature are poems. And we explored how uniquely we should engage the psalms. They should be read out. They were designed to read out loud in the corporate context. They're to be savored and felt. We are to understand them, but also feel them. They're, they call us to something. We're to respond to the psalms, and, and they're meant to be sung. And so we sing them. We're to pray them. We're to encounter God and know him through them. They're to instruct our mind theologically, but, but they're to do something deep in us, too. They're to do something in our hearts, our affections, and our behavior. They shape us personally. They shape us as God's community. And we dipped into Psalm 1 and 2, what the the scholars would describe as sort of the gateway, the doorways to the rest of the Psalter, meaning the themes introduced in those two Psalms set the stage for the other 148. There is blessing for those who are in covenant with God, who trust and take refuge in Him. There is judgment for those who reject him and do not trust or take refuge in him. And Psalms 1 and 2 also gives us this prophetic uh, vision uh, speaking of a better king, namely Jesus, who would provide righteousness and refuge for God's people. And so before we read this, I want to be sure we remind our hearts that the Psalms are about Christ. They, they point us to him. They resolve in him. And we're going to see that vividly this morning. So as we, as we read and pray and sing and study the Psalms, it's important we kind of keep this pathway in view. We begin with, as we do with all biblical texts, the, the sort of the then and there, the author's meaning. What, what was David singing about? What was Asaph or the sons of Korah? What was the context in which they wrote or sang that? And then what did it mean for Israel to sing and respond to this song? And then, we then eventually get to Jesus, who would ultimately fulfill and sing that song. And from that, we then look to us. We say, how how does this then enable us to sing and pray them in and through Jesus? So the Psalms point us to Jesus, and they resolve or culminate in Jesus. Remember what he taught his disciples in Luke 24, after his resurrection. He said, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So they're written about him, and and we 
we will see that they are by him as well. Jesus will call these words his words, his song. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and author, many years ago, he wrote about this completion in Jesus. He says, it is he who is praying here, and not only here, but in the whole Psalter. The human Jesus Christ, to whom no affliction, no illness, no suffering is unknown, and who yet was wholly innocent and the righteous one, is praying in the Psalter through the mouth of his congregation. The Psalter is the prayer book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. In that he they're about him. They are fulfilled in him. And so when, in our union with Jesus, as in the Holy Spirit, as we sing and we pray, like we do, we say, we, Andrew just did this, we pray in Jesus' name, they make them effectual and true. We pray and we worship in his name and we join with him in song and praying as we pray the Psalms. Augustine wrote, when we sing the Psalms, you are actually singing the songs of Jesus with Jesus as the song leader. His song is being performed, and the rest join in in singing in it. So imagine Jesus as the worship leader. He's directing us in what is true. He is perfectly singing the song and fulfilled the song, and he's inviting us to join in him, in his choir, to sing and pray and proclaim these truths fulfilled in Jesus. So as we work through the Psalms this summer, let's consider that path. The author, be David, Israel, Christ, and then us. And as we do that, we would speak and communicate them in and through Christ. And so let's read now Psalm 40 together with all that kind of in the background. And let's consider David as we read together. But let's also consider Jesus speaking these words as well. So the words will be up on, this is the ESV version, so feel free to look at your Bible or uh, up there. But let's read the Psalms together out loud And we'll make our way slowly through this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, and they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverances within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. 
They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word this morning needy, needy for you to to speak to us through your word, by your spirit, for us to, to know and us to understand, for us to feel, to believe, to respond as we should. We need your, your spirit's help. So Lord, come by your spirit, open up our heart, open up our eyes to, to believe and to, to ultimately see your son Jesus and what he has done so that we, we can cry out, great is the Lord because of your salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the Psalms have been categorized in various types. Psalms of, of praise, where we speak of God's attributes, thanksgiving about what God has done, his works, lament, where we speak honesty and prayer over our suffering, imprecation or imprecatory prayers where we're proclaiming a desire for justice in God's mercy, and wisdom where God teaches us. Psalms 40, Psalm 40 is, is designated as a psalm of praise as well as lament. I don't know if you felt that as we went through. There was this proclaiming of praise, of gratitude, and yet there made this turn of, of lament, of God's help being cried out for. There's a mixture in this psalm, and, and that is true of many psalms. It's not just cut and dry. And what, what I find interesting about this psalm is how it flows. What could seem odd, it moves from praise to lament. I mean, it wouldn't it be more logical to go from lament to praise? Isn't that how it's supposed to work? Well, the, that's part of the beauty of psalms. Is it, it actually it captures real life. <laughs> real life. Is, it, is that how it goes? Everything's hard, and then they go, all, everything's rosy. No, sometimes things are going well, and we, we see God at work, and things don't go well, and we're crying out for God to do something on the way things were going well. That life is like this, a back and forth of acknowledging God's promises. We're confident in what he's done. We're in a good place, and then we find ourselves desperate again. A movement from praise to lament or thanksgiving to need and lament. Yet in, in both of those, we see the psalmist and what is a promise for us that we can turn to a good God who is faithful and true. And so we're going to look at our psalm in those two parts. So you, you could find them in two parts. One is a looking back of praise from verses 1 through 10, and then a calling out for a present need, a lament that the psalmist is currently in, verses 11 through 17. And at the center of this psalm is the answer which grips the psalmist, which my prayers will also for us. Salvation provided by somebody far off beyond David that he's looking to by faith that we likewise 
look to. So let's look at the psalm, verse 1 through 10, the past deliverance. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Waiting patiently. In the Hebrew, there is actually a repetition to give emphasis that we don't really see in our English. It, it, it reads, waiting, I waited for the Lord. Waiting, I waited. David was been crying out, waiting for God's deliverance from this, this muddy bog that we're seeing, this, this dungeness, what he calls a pit of, of destruction. It's actually a culmination of waiting that we see through chapters 37 through 39 in chapter 40. He, here's a few of them. He says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. O now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. You feel the, this, this longing and we seem to think of our deliverances and our waiting to be kind of microwave. And I just appreciate we've got chapters over a long period of time. We don't know how long. And David's been waiting. He's been waiting and waiting. I waited. Waiting to be delivered from a pit. It's metaphorical. It's not probably a real pit. But there's this, this helpless image that we feel in this a pit that maybe makes us think of Joseph when scriptures also use a pit, a pit that he was thrown into, hated by his very family, and then it was loss after loss, waiting after waiting, years after years, experiencing what felt like a dungeonous pit for him, but God eventually lifted Joseph up. What was David's pit? Well, some commentators suggested this psalm is connected to First Samuel, when the prophet Samuel confronts Saul after he was commanded to destroy the Amalekites, to devote everything to destruction. And yet Saul, what did Saul do? He, he didn't do that. He takes King Agag, their king, and he lets him live. And then he plunders the best of the animals, which he later blames on the people for doing. And he tells the prophet that what he was going to do with the, the animals, he was going to offer sacrifice to the Lord later. But because of his disobedience, God tears the kingdom from Saul. Saul's heart was not postured to obey and trust, but wrongly believed that his religious act of sacrifice would somehow be sufficient. And it's where we read that, that famous verse, better is obedience than sacrifice. And after that, the spirit leaves and departs from Saul, and it says it rushes upon King David. In God's choosing David, jealousy rises up, in Saul's heart. He rages to try to kill him, and then David's on the run. Danger to danger, pit to pit. And we know for certain, all, we don't know for sure all that was pressing in on David as he wrote these words, but in this pit, enemies, political turmoil, sickness, but he does point to two things later in the psalm of his current distress, the oppression and threats of enemies, those who seek to take his life, and we saw his sins iniquities that are overtaking him. But, but what did God do as he cried out to him? We do know what seemed perilous to David, he experienced God's deliverance. He, God inclined. One way you could say this, he bent down to me. God bent down to him. 
What's interesting is just even the way that, that God bent down to him as he cried out. He descended and he heard and he lifted him up out of this figurative pit and he set his feet upon something stable like a rock, a, a ledge that is secure. Just imagine, I just imagine baby Jessica, right, down in that well, helpless, and all she could do is cry out to God. Like, like cry out to God like David did. David's helplessness cried out to the Lord, and in David's helpless situation, God was faithful. God was faithful, and out of this rescue came a celebration. There was a sense of sort of parade that responds from David, a new song. He couldn't resist but praise, a right response to a extreme rescue. And this rescue reminds him of all of God's wondrous deeds, and he's just going, I can't even recount of them. And he testifies to others that they would hear and trust in, in Yahweh. So David's modeling for us what true faithfulness and trust in the Lord is. David's waiting was not a passive lazily sitting around. It was an an active trust. I think we could say the parallel here in our text is his waiting is trusting. Many will see and also fear and trust in the Lord. And then he says in verse 4, happy or blessed is the one who puts their trust in the Lord. Remember Psalm 1 and 2 being the sort of the gateway. David is fulfilling the covenant faithfulness expressed in Psalm 1 and 2 of the blessed one who trusts in God who delights in God. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, Psalm 2, 12, who trusts, who, who has allegiance to the ultimate king, who kisses the son, the anointed one. When we are stuck in a pit, we will have two choices. It will be him or something else. It will be truth or it will be a lie. This is what he says. Blessed are those who trust in him and who do not turn or look to the proud or those who go astray after a lie or to idols or false gods. Those who trust God or who will walk in the counsel of the wicked. It will be one, one or the other. Everyone is looking for a savior in something or someone. And happy is the one who puts their faith and trust in the Lord. But here's a danger that even the psalmist draws our attention to. Even religious activity can be a false security when it's detached from true heart worship. David is seen here now in contrast to Saul. He is God's king who is pursuing obedience and trust from the heart and not an empty religious activity. And, And David's able to see this because of God's work in him. Look at verse 7. He says, God had given him an ear to understand this. Not empty, false worship, detached from true heart worship, but heart worship. Look at verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. You see those connections to Psalm 1, a delighting in God's word, a a heart that is ready with true worship, true waiting, true trusting is true worship for those needy for God's salvation, not just with religious duty and expression, but 
religious emotions, but from the heart. This was the problem with Saul, and this is where we see David moving towards God in faithful worship. James Hamilton says, Sacrifice makes provision for those unsuccessful at obedience. Obedience is Yahweh's first choice, and sacrifice is provided those who try to obey and fail. The, the religious system was for those who, out of their heart, desired true atonement and would go and do that out of faith, out of a heart of faith. The heart is always the target here. God is not interested in our external act, actions and duties. He is after our heart. Delights in God's will, and it is from within the heart. And this is the song for David. This is a song that Israel was to join in. For Israel, in the threat of enemy nations and the temptations to look elsewhere for deliverance, idols, or other nations, Israel was to look to the covenant-keeping God, to turn from their sins and put their wholehearted trust in the Lord. Empty, heartless religious practices would not save them but true trust and waiting in faith on Yahweh would. That was true worship. And blessing and refuge is for those who cry out to him in faith. Derek Kidner, commentator, said, There is no refuge from him, only in him. Israel was to find refuge in Yahweh by faith. And this is good news to be proclaimed. This is... This is a radical rescue. This is a, an amazing event of God's salvation that is to be declared. I just think of baby Jessica and the fact that a, the president would fly in for something pretty, pretty significant. And David knew this was significant and he proclaimed among the people. The song of prayer was for the assembly to hear, to join in in ongoing trust together. But note our emphasis. It, it's not David's faithfulness It is not Israel's faithfulness, it's God's faithfulness. His righteousness, his deliverance, his salvation, his repetition, his steadfast love, his care for a covenant-breaking people because God is the covenant God and covenant maker who is faithful. We we hear echoing in the song the, the, the way God revealed himself to Moses In Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the glad news that David is declaring among the congregation that Israel was to sing and declare why they are together and that we also declare together. So David is looking back. He's experienced God's provision of salvation. He's proclaiming. He's remembering it. And then we see a shift in Psalm 40, verse 11, from past deliverance to a petition for a desperate place. He's once again in a pit, now in another. And he points to two things that are afflicting him, his enemies and his own sin. Now, we know already of Saul's plan to kill David and He was on the run along with others who wished destruction of David and of Israel. And David is deeply aware of his neediness and weakness. The the NIV actually translates verse 11 as a petition. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. He knows God's mercy is available, but he wants 
his mercy to be poured out. Don't let your mercy be restrained from me, O God. Why is he so desperate for God's mercy? He is aware of his sinful condition. They're overtaking him such that he says I, he is blind, that his heart is failing him. So numerous, more than the, the hairs on his head. Some scientists figure out what is the average number of hairs on our head. For some of us, more or less than others. They estimate around 90,000 to 150,000 hairs on our head. The point of poetry is that, that we don't know the exact number of that and try to count, but it, they were to, to feel and be, be overwhelmed by the uncountable the number. This is, this is unreal. This is staggering. None of us has, have counted the, the numerous numbers of hair on our head. But if we think about this sort of number, it's, it's, over, it's an overwhelming reality. David's sin is an overwhelming reality to him. And we, we've all experienced that, that where our sin becomes and feels like an overwhelming reality. He says, I can't even see. Sometimes we've battled with our sin so much that there's this, we're, we're, we're so overshadowed with condemnation, condemnation and guilt, we, we can't even see beyond that very reality. And David is overwhelmed. Sin is seeking to snatch his life. His enemies are seeking to do the same. And all he can say is, help me, deliver me. Hurry, Lord, and cry out for somehow in God's providence that he would move in those who mock and shame him, who say, aha, to him, they would be put to shame. David is desperate for this. It's as if he's, he's stuck in, a, in an eight-inch hole, immovable, surrounded, squeezed in, not only by his own sin, by these external forces, Overwhelmed with personal failure, overwhelmed and oppressed by outside forces, and he's helpless. Have you felt that way? Maybe you're feeling that way, overwhelmed by your personal failings, overwhelmed and overcome by oppressive forces, and all, all you feel immovable and stuck. I don't, I don't know if Dave, baby Jessica where's her position, if he could look up and see anything, but I just I, I see David just looking up saying, All I got is you. I can do nothing about my plight right now. I cannot save myself. What will we trust in? David cries out to Yahweh. He reminds his heart, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. You will not let me fall. You will not let me remain here. And not because of David's perfect love or David's faithfulness, but Yahweh's steadfast love and faithfulness. That will preserve him. He is his deliverer. As for me, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help. You are my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. He's waiting again. It's kind of come full circle. He's, he's waiting again, but it, it's an awaiting that's full of trust in him. Trust in Yahweh. So as we see, Dean David's faithful trust is in contrast to King Saul's. He is contrary to Saul with an obedience that we know 
that, that David was called a man after God's own heart. And yet we know from this very psalm, his very words, he is not perfectly pure in his heart, in his trust and obedience. He is confessing that he is being overwhelmed by his own sin. He's, he's failing to delight perfectly in God's ways. He's blinded by his sin. Unlike baby Jessica, who innocently fell into the well, David willfully tumbles into this pit. But God is merciful. His mercy is unrestrained. It means he doesn't hold any of it back. In David's weakness, there is this prophetic longing for a better king. Something, something greater than this that somebody needs to sing and fulfill. Unlike Saul and unlike David, and our, our key is in the center of this psalm, verse 7 and 8. David says, in the scroll of the book is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. We have to say, who, who is the, the me here in this text? Who delights perfectly in God's will from within the heart? Well, the answer we find is in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 speaks about this final completed atonement that all of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament pointed to, and it points to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the prophesied one, the the perfect, obedient, better king who mediates for his people by his sacrificial life and death. This is what Hebrews 10.4 says. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Did you see that? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then the Hebrews author goes on to quote, Psalm 40. The author of Hebrews is making an amazing connection for us. Jesus came into the world and said what was written about me hundreds of years before are actually his very words in Psalm 40. Then Hebrews goes on to say of Jesus completing God's will, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What is What is this psalm pointing us to? What is Jesus saying about his words here? The deeper deliverance David needed, that Israel needed from sins and enemies comes through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial life, his blood. By the offering of his life, we are made righteous, acceptable to God for all who find themselves and realize that they are poor and needy, unable to rescue themselves, recognize their helpless condition apart from Christ, recognize their lost and perilous situation of eternal death, and we look up and cry out to him. We can't save ourselves. We can only cast ourselves on him. See, David is the king who calls out for rescue from his enemies and his sins, but it points us to a greater song, a song that Jesus sang and fulfilled, and he was the one who waited on and delighted on with all his heart in God's provision 
for our sins and rescue from our enemies. This is, this is the beauty we see in this psalm. Jesus, who descended and went down into the depths, the realm of the dead, the pit, not for his wrong, but for our sins. And Jesus is the one who tells us, and he cries out in John chapter, um, chapter 12, Now my soul is troubled, and for what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. What was his hour? His hour was to go to the cross where his perfect cry, where he was forsaken, his life became a sacrifice for those that would replace all of those bulls and rams that they pointed to his sacrifice to suffer and save those who would put faith in him. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, they mocked him. They taunted him. He was despised and rejected by men. Though he was innocent, he found deliverance. He did go to the grave, but he rose up for our salvation, conquering death. On all of Jesus' enemies, he disgraces, he humiliates in his victory so that in him we have the same victory. So this song is a song of Jesus where we don't, become mesmerized by David because he was weak and he was imperfect, but we become mesmerized by Jesus who was faithful and perfectly delighted and waited on the Father. And David proclaimed good news, but Jesus came and proclaimed his good news, his gospel, his good and glad news of deliverance so that we could stand upon him and in him who is the rock. First Timothy 2 tells us, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, and he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. David's crying out points us to one who is greater, who cries out, who right now makes intercession for anyone and all who cry out to him. So, so what, are you, what are you trusting in today, saints? I don't know what sort of miry bog or pit you may feel in. Maybe you feel like you've been pushed into or that maybe you've dug yourself into. This is where God inclines to. He, he inclines to those who feel needy and helpless and turn and trust to him. This song gives us words to pray and cry out as well. Can you join into this song this morning? Do you feel in your heart poor and needy and see your need for his great provision of rescue? Well, look and see Jesus' provision for you. Those who love his salvation can say, great is the Lord. Blessed is the one who trusts in Jesus. Not those who turn to lies, but to the truth who is Christ he inclines to those. He does not restrain his mercy to those, but delivers them. I love the contrast we have in this psalm, the, the beautiful contrast early in verse 5. He says, your works are so wonderful, too much that I, I can't even, they're too numerous, I can't even speak of them. And then later in verse 12, his troubles are without number. Sins that are so exceedingly great, I can't even number them. But what do we see here? What, what will win out for us in our weakness? Will it be our sins or our enemies? 
or it will be God's numerous faithfulness and works of salvation and his constant steadfast love. That will win out, saints, for all who cry out to him. The psalm ends and returns to this desperate plea. I am afflicted, poor, and needy with a humble waiting trust. I think it's important for us to remember that we're all tempted to want to come into community or worship and feel like we, we, we're on the front end, on the praise section. And, and that doesn't dictate healthy spirituality. What, it, what, what does is that we realize we are poor and needy and we place our faith and hope in him. We can be needy and yet be safe. We can be poor and yet rich with security because we have a Savior who is with us in it. And that whatever that scary pit or heavy oppression that we are experiencing, it is not our destination because we are in and with Christ. And he went down to raise us up and there is a future raising up that we are looking to. And so we can come in humbly and say, I am poor and I am needy. And this move from praise to lament and lament to praise can be our prayer. John Stott said, Every Christian believer is fortified in present trial by the memory of past blessing. This is what David was doing. He was remembering and he was crying out again. And we we need help to do that. We need help to remember and be fortified by past uh, rescue and God's promises so that we could be fortified in our present trial. Jesus is the promise David sings of, and by all those who look to faith in Christ through Israel's history, through New Testament church, and what they sang, Peter and Paul, generations of saints before us and for us in in this room right now. I was speaking with a sister recently, and she was struggling deeply with areas of pain and loss and anxiety, and she, was, she had been praying and singing this very song. She, she didn't feel like she was in absolute solid ground. She felt like she was more of pit than solid ground, but she was, as she was testifying of poor and needy, she was reminded that the Lord takes thought from me. And she was waiting and trusting, and that built me up. That filled me with faith. She was proclaiming what God was doing in and through that. David's reaction needs to be our reaction. It should be for us proclaiming and not withholding in and among the assembly. That's part of the means of grace of the church assembly. The, the means of grace of community is that, that whereby poor and needy folks who love his salvation proclaim for in one another, great is the Lord. The Lord takes thought of you. The Lord takes thought of you. He sees you. His steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve you if it's encompassed with oppressive things and forces from outside or your sins. We look up to him. We rejoice in his salvation. We get to sing songs, even like today. Praise praise with him to endless life, and he will hold us fast till our faith is turned to sight. He will hold us us fast. This is what we get to do, church. We get to come and remind our hearts as we wait, we come poor and needy to trust him, and we anticipate a day when there will be no more sins, 
that there will be no more enemies to plague us, no more Mari bogs or, or pits, but we wait, we wait, anticipate a day when all of that will be gone, and we will sing unhindered, great is the Lord. Great is the Lord together in and with the assembly of God's people. Let's pray. Lord, this psalm is a song, a prayer for us. And at times we, we can doubt as we wait and we trust that you're, you're really hearing. And for, I just ask for those who would maybe feel like they're in, a, in that pit alone. Uh, Lord, you would, you would remind their hearts that the, the Lord takes thought of them. The Lord thinks of them. Lord, you would remind their hearts of, Lord, your wondrous deliverances of past, your nearness and present grace now. And Lord, they would remind their hearts, Lord, you would remind their hearts by your spirit that Christ, you are the proof that you do care because you're the one that was forsaken. You went down for them to be with them, to comfort them in that place, to lift and raise them up. So Lord, be comfort to those who feel are experiencing that desperate place today. Well, thank you for the promise that, that as we do experience your grace and we can speak of that to one another, that we can, when you do put a song in our mouth, a song of praise, others will see and put their trust. I just, I just ask, Lord, that we would continue to be a, a faithful people who would, through your work, Jesus not withhold your salvation within our hearts, but we would not conceal your steadfast love to the congregation, but we would speak your truth and encouragement to one another. Lord, each and every one of us, we are in the end poor and needy. But we love your salvation. We love your salvation, Lord, so we can say great is the Lord. give you praise and give you thanks. Amen.